It's Tuesday, November 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Great news on the vaccine front. Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine candidate has been shown to be 90% effective in early findings. The Pfizer vaccine is a two-shot protocol given three weeks apart. They are still waiting on more data, but could possibly apply for an emergency use authorization before the end of November. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for what to know about the latest vaccine news. Next, it was a crazy election week, but probably the most hectic for the nation's vote counters. While the rest of the country was waiting anxiously to see which candidate would be elected president, these vote counters worked day and night amid hecklers, protesters, and allegations of fraud. Some even endured physical threats and online harassment. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, local governments are raising concern over using rapid response antigen tests on asymptomatic people. Louisiana, one of the first states to receive shipments from the U.S. government, said that these tests aren't recommended for those that may be asymptomatic because they can return false positives or miss it completely if someone has a small viral load. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for the caution around rapid COVID tests. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, which is the independent board that I've spoken to you about often, that independently looks at the data, has come up and told us that we now have a vaccine that is more than 90% effective. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. Got some great news on the vaccine front today. The Pfizer vaccine that's in collaboration with BioNTech, they said that their vaccine candidates is shown to be 90% effective in their early findings. They've enrolled over 40,000 people And I think about 39,000 of them or so have gotten the two-shot protocol that is required on this one. And uh, they're saying that they're getting great results on this. So, Karen, tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's better than most people expected uh, the results would be. So the way this works is they vaccinate a bunch of people and then wait for them to get sick. And there are different kind of moments at which they take a look at the data. The companies don't have access to the data As time goes on, it's an independent board that knows half the participants are in a placebo group and half aren't. And so they have to wait to look and see, did more people get infected in the placebo group versus the non-placebo group, the active vaccine group? And that's what happened in this case. The vaccine was 90 percent effective at preventing infection in those people who got the vaccine. In this first batch of data, it seemed like only 94 trial participants actually came down with COVID-19. Is that right? Yes. And that's what they do. They Originally, they were going to give us results at 32 participants, but they decided to go to over 90 just for more, more assurance. And they'll stop at 164 because at that point, once there have been that many infections, they're 90 percent sure that the vaccine will be effective. So what's the reaction been so far? I know President-elect Joe Biden has said some stuff on this. President Trump has also weighed in on this. What's the reaction for all of it? Everybody's ecstatic. Uh, I mean, it literally couldn't be any better. There's no such thing as a 100% effective vaccine. So 90% probably won't be that effective in the real world. People are sicker than they are when they're trial participants or have other things going on. They wait too long. Other things, life intervenes. But a number like this couldn't be any better. I just hung up with a doctor who said he called his parents and said, I have the first really good news in nine months for you um, talking about this result. (laughs) That's great. Now, a couple of interesting things on this. This particular vaccine candidate uses the mRNA. 
And no product like this has ever been approved by regulators. So this would be a first if this goes all the way through and gets that authorization. It's new technology that luckily was under development before COVID for other conditions. And when COVID came along, all they really need to do is plug in the genetic code and they have a new vaccine for a new disease. And that's what they did in this case. And that's why they were able to turn it so quickly and bring it to the public so quickly. So they're waiting for a little bit more data. They're saying that maybe by the end of this month, they can already put in the request for an emergency use authorization. So today's data was effectiveness data. What they're still waiting for is safety data. And what the FDA has required is that they have to, at least no median of half of the people have to have been out two months from their vaccine. So if you're going to have a side effect from a vaccine, it's most likely to happen in the first six weeks. And so they wanted to get a cushion beyond that more than half the people in the trial beyond that point. And that will, they will hit that in the third week of November. The other interesting part of this particular vaccine candidate, that it was not necessarily part of Operation Warp Speed. The federal government didn't pay to help develop this particular vaccine candidate. And beyond that, the amount of doses that they're expected to produce, what do we know about that? The federal government has paid for five other vaccines under development to bring them to the point of clinical trials and through clinical trials. Pfizer said, we've got this. We don't need your money for that. But they have taken almost or been promised almost $2 billion for making doses of the vaccine. The companies say that they can have 50 million doses before the end of this year and over a billion next year. And that's the hard part, too, is getting enough doses uh, for people to get their shots. And especially it's the two shot protocol. So you need twice as many, really, for every person. Finally, where do we stand on some of the other vaccine candidates? I know Moderna is said to have some news pretty soon. And, and then obviously we have a few others that are already in phase three trials. Moderna, their first interim result, it was supposed to be around now in the next week or two. It may be pushed off if they wait for more results like Pfizer did. But we were expected to hear around now from Moderna. Um, Novavax, which is another federally funded vaccine project, they should be able to start phase three in the next couple of weeks. AstraZeneca, which is collaborating with Oxford University, they're in phase three, Johnson & Johnson, Sanofi, um, but they haven't started phase three trials. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There has been no evidence of any significant or widespread voter fraud. Joe Biden won this election fair and square. Joining us now is Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Happy to be here. It has been a crazy week of election results, and really, probably it's been the craziest for the vote counters of the nation across all of the states. Obviously, they were under intense pressure to count all the votes quickly. And then after the, you know, the president has been alleging a lot of fraud and everything, the intense scrutiny that came after that, there was protesters, there was people watching over their shoulders. I mean, it must, like I said, it just must've been the craziest for them to go through all of this. So Amy, tell us a little bit about what they went through. Cause you wrote a, an article kind of looking into everything that they went through and you spoke to a lot of officials as well on this. So tell us a little bit about it. Sure. I think one of the greatest examples of what it was like was inside the counting facility at the convention hall in Detroit, where Wayne County election officials were doing their counting of mail ballots. It was a large room where ballot counters were sitting at tables. And at at each of those tables, 
were at least a Republican poll watcher, a Democratic poll watcher, and a nonpartisan poll watcher. And our reporting showed that in a lot of cases, the Republican poll watcher would speak directly to the poll worker, which is against the rules, it's illegal, and say, I challenge that ballot. I challenge that ballot. I challenge that ballot just over and over and over again. And at one point, a woman I spoke to who was a nonpartisan observer told me that she watched a sort of a organizing supervisor for Republican poll watchers speaking to one of the Republicans and saying, I want you to reject every single ballot. I want you to question and object to every single one. And then the Democratic observer at that table said, you don't have to do this. You can stand up and do what's right and let the ballot counting proceed. And then that supervisor figure interjected, you don't have to do it, and then I'll go get someone who will to that Republican <laughs> poll watcher. So that's the kind of circumstances that we reported. And it got so ugly, and these poll watchers were accusing the workers of being criminals, of being crooks, of right. stealing the election. They were yelling at them. And when that happened, they would get ejected because you're not supposed to talk to the poll workers. You're supposed to bring your concerns or your objections to the supervisors in the election staff. They would get ejected and the poll workers would stand up and clap when they got ejected right. because they were so emotional and they were like working around the clock. These folks never stopped counting until it was done. So that amount of pressure was, I think, unfathomable for most of us. I don't think most of us have known as much about how counting works in election until this year because it came under so much scrutiny. The other dynamic that I think is really important to be aware of is the racial dynamic that was at work in a lot of these counting facilities. In a lot of these communities where the vote counts were getting a lot of scrutiny because the states where the count was the closest had this demographic dynamic, you had black poll workers, a lot of black female poll workers, and white Republican observers mostly men. And so you have this really ugly sort of undertone where you have white men literally physically hovering over black women, calling them criminals. I wanted you to talk a little bit more about live streaming, because in a lot of these places, obviously, there's a record number of ballots that were counted. There really were very few glitches and no evidence of widespread fraud, despite, you know, a lot of the claims out there. But a lot of these places had live streams in place so that people could continue to watch how everything was playing out. Well, that's the other thing. As we continue to sort of field these accusations of wrongdoing and fraud, some of the accusers are, are saying sort of patently untrue things, demonstrably false things, like we weren't allowed in. In that same county facility in Detroit, where every single table had a Republican poll watcher at it, there was a crowd of Republicans outside clamoring to be let in because a conservative group, Stand Up Michigan, that was one of the organizations that was fighting the COVID restrictions against Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan in the spring, they put out a call on Facebook, go down to the county facility in Detroit. They're not letting Republicans. We need help challenging ballots, I think was the language exactly. So it was false that Republicans weren't being let in. They made a big deal about cardboard covering up some of the windows that allowed people to see into the county facility. Right. That was because people were taking pictures, which is against the law in yeah. Michigan, and had been instructed not to, but they did it anyway. So that wasn't hiding anything. Again, there were dozens of poll watchers in the room. So there, there was transparency. Uh, Philadelphia is one of the places that had the live stream like you're describing. Arizona had one too. In Maricopa County, it's actually required 
prior to this year to have a live feed of counting in Arizona. But Maricopa County, which had a lot of protesters outside of its counting facility in Phoenix, actually posted signs that had one of those QR codes and the live stream of the count shows up on your phone. I mean, it's kind of cool. So there was this enormous effort to provide transparency. One last really great example, Fulton County announced over the weekend that there had been a discrepancy in the counting of some ballots that had been improperly counted. And so they were going to be rescanned. I believe it was on Saturday. And a bunch of folks kind of freaked out about this on Twitter and said, oh, this is fraud. They're trying to steal the election. This must be why Joe Biden is ahead in Georgia. We need to get in there and see the count. They're not letting us see the count. And I think President Trump retweeted one of the tweets in that vein over the weekend. And then the Secretary of State of Georgia, who is a Republican named Brad Raffensperger, said, no, people, it was like 300 and some ballots. It's a common thing that happens. And I was in the room when they rescanned the ballots and it was done properly. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Take it easy. If it's positive, it usually pops pretty quickly, so you'll be able to see it. It really is akin almost to like, I mean, lighting the thing like almost like a pregnancy test in some respects. Joining us now is Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about these rapid COVID tests. They're uh, increasing in popularity. The government, as a matter of fact, is shipping them out to a lot of states. One of the first states to receive a shipment of these rapid response tests is Louisiana. And they're actually throwing out some guidelines out there, basically saying that they don't recommend asymptomatic or healthy people being tested with them. And these one-off antigen tests aren't really a way to go back to normal. You can recall the White House is using these for quite some time, and then there was an outbreak there. So, Emma, tell us what we're learning about these rapid response tests. You know, when people hear about these antigen tests, the first thing that comes to mind is, wow, this could be a way to getting back to normal, because these are tests that have a lot of advantages. They return results in about 15 minutes. They don't require a lot of equipment to process, so they can be processed on-site where you're taking the test, so that saves time. And they're about a fraction of the cost of PCR tests, polymerase chain reaction tests that are a lot more common. And for a while, the big problem with these tests was they just weren't that widely available. We've started to see, you know, more companies get into the game here, and these tests have become more widely available. And in fact, the government has facilitated that, right, by sending them to states, as as you mentioned before. But what we're starting to see here is, you know, the great promise of these tests is really that you can use them outside of a hospital setting because you don't need to have a big clunky lab. You can process these tests in different kinds of places. And the federal government has actually said, as they roll these tests out to states, that these tests could be used, you know, not just in a, a, like a nursing home or an assisted living facility or even places like schools, as there's this push to reopen schools. So the big issue that comes up, however, and it's something we're starting to see play out in different states now, is that when these tests were cleared by the Food and Drug Administration and they weren't studied in asymptomatic people. As we know, asymptomatic people can spread the virus. There's a lot of concern about asymptomatic people. There's a desire and a need to test asymptomatic people. But we're seeing states like Louisiana say, 
we're concerned about how these tests perform in asymptomatic people. We're not sure if we can trust the results at this point based on the data we have now. Um, And so they're issuing some pretty cautious guidance saying, if you're someone who doesn't have symptoms, has no reason to believe you've been exposed to COVID-19, you know, you are in a confirmed contact with someone with COVID-19, maybe you shouldn't use this test. And it's likely in Louisiana, providers may still use these tests in people like that because they may not have anything else available. You know, testing access yeah. still varies widely around the country. I know they deliver some false positives every now and then as well, but is it because they're asymptomatic? Maybe they're just not presenting as much as the virus. While reporting my story, I spoke with a scientist who has studied, you know, one of these new tests from Abbott Labs. And this is something that the Brett Gerard, who leads testing strategy for the U.S. government for the Department of Health and Human Services, has said. The difference in studies, there's been shown to be very little difference in terms of how much virus people who are asymptomatic and symptomatic produce. So it's thought that this is not really the problem. What seems to be the problem thing we've heard from the government is that as you start using these tests in settings where people aren't normally doing tests, you may have more user error, right? You know, the FDA put out a warning the other day saying you can have false positives for a variety of reasons. There's contamination in, in the setting you're doing tests, but also if someone takes too long or too little time to read the test, you could get a false positive result. Another issue is that these tests have a much better ability to predict whether someone is positive if it's being used in a population where there's a lot of virus prevalence. So if you're testing, you know, in a community where there aren't a lot of virus cases, then you're more likely to have a false positive. So how should they be used? I mean, as a backup to the PCR test, in what place do they fall? It's a really good question. And I think it's a marker of the way that testing has shaken out in this administration, that we are seeing states come up with various policies on this. And they're not all in alignment, although I did speak with a official uh, with a, a nonprofit that works across different states who said many states are concerned about how these antigen tests perform in this asymptomatic population. And many are saying you can use a PCR test. Oregon is an interesting example because they've actually said, if you have a positive antigen test result, even if you're, it's possible that might not be a true positive because you're asymptomatic and you haven't been exposed, they don't recommend confirming it with a PCR test because they say, you know, you can have problems with both. So I think we're going to see this shake out in a lot of different ways, but I, I think The main advice to a consumer right now is if you're thinking about, wow, a rapid test that would make my life a lot easier, I'll have to wait a couple of days or maybe even as long as a week for a PCR test result, you should think about what might happen. You know, first of all, are you in a population where there is a lot of virus prevalent? But also think about what might happen if you get a false positive result. I mean, you might have to quarantine, you know, you you might need to take another test. I mean, there could be some significant disruptive things that happen. We're hoping to get some more data and some more research about these issues as these tests get more widely deployed. But it it does show kind of how we're trying to do science in a pandemic, you know, where we don't have all the answers right now. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.